the Trump administration has made it a major priority to increase not North American content, or not just North American content, but U.S. content. And that's a novelty in these trade agreements. How is this rhetoric going to really flesh out in terms of negotiating trade agreements? What was technically covered by the North American Free Trade Agreement were economic practices. However, what it launched was a period of much closer cooperation between the United States and Mexico. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Alex Hitch, filling in for Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the ongoing renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, why the agreement is being renegotiated in the first place, how this differs from other trade talks, and what we can expect as the negotiations continue later this fall. I'm here with Phil Levy, Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Council. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Phil, NAFTA talks seem to have hit a bit of an impasse after some of the more controversial topics were tabled during the most recent round of the negotiation. What happened, and where do we stand now on the renegotiation between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada? Yeah, it's been a very interesting week. Um, This was round four of a scheduled seven rounds that they were supposed to have. The first three rounds were not entirely boilerplate, but it was going through fairly innocuous issues that... Um, didn't upset anyone excessively. Um, this was the this was the round in which it all hit the road. the The U.S. finally tabled text on a lot of the issues that had been most controversial. So across a range of areas, they went from the sort of abstract and provocative ideas that President Trump had put forward to actual plans that they hoped that Mexico and Canada would embrace as legal language. Um, Mexico and Canada did not embrace these. This did not go well. Um, the to which, which um, USTR uh, Ambassador Lighthizer seemed to be surprised by. He may have been the only person who was surprised by that. The upshot of this was that they were supposed to be having these meetings about every two weeks. There was another one scheduled by the end of this month. They postponed that. So it's not an impasse per se. It's time to think things over and to decide where they want to go from here. Um, But I don't think – so better than had things blown up, but not exactly a rosy picture for going forward. The other thing that I would mention in terms of what we know now in terms of where we're headed, it had seemed uh, that there was a fairly hard deadline to all of this, that everyone involved had repeatedly said – these talks have to wrap up by the end of the year, by December, because Mexico has presidential elections next summer in July of 2018, and it would not be a good idea to be holding these controversial negotiations right in the midst of a presidential campaign. One of the things we found out this week, uh, which was a novelty, was they've decided to relax that. Nobody's moving the Mexican election, but they are saying that they are going to hold talks in the winter Um, as we sort of get into the new year. Um, So that will pose its own political challenges, but at least they relaxed that deadline a little bit for themselves. And you had mentioned some of these different proposals that were tabled in this most recent round by the U.S. specifically that were more controversial. What specifics are uh, those those, uh, tabled uh, parts of the negotiation including? 
Yeah, so borrowing somebody else's analysis here, somebody sort of characterizes as the big five issues. And this is from a U.S. perspective. And the big five issues were dairy, that the U.S. wants Canada to be more open in its dairy trade. Um, that's a sort of unusually conventional trade issue for, for these particular talks. There's two of them that have to do with dispute settlement, um, whether it's so-called Chapter 19 issues or investor state dispute settlement. We can come back to that if you like. Um, then there's one on rules of origin and one on something called a sunset clause. I think the rules of origin may be the one that's worth delving into a little bit. Well, they all could be worth delving into, but the rules of origin sort of exemplifies what's different and what's challenging about these talks. And rules of origin being a certain percentage of content being from one country or another. Yeah. So the big question is when you have a free trade agreement like NAFTA, um, it says that goods that are North American goods will get preferential treatment, that they won't face tariffs. That begs the question, well, what is a North American good? That would be a pretty easy question if goods were always made either in one country or another country. They're not. So goods are made with parts coming from all over. What balance of, the, of component parts lets you qualify as a North American good? That's the question that a rule of origin answers. That, and what we, this is not a new concept. We have this in the original NAFTA. And so if you take a sector like the automotive sector, one of the most integrated across North America, they had had, I, I believe it was a 62.5% threshold to qualify as a North American good. So you needed to have 62.5% components that came from the US, Canada, or Mexico. Even that oversimplifies things quite a bit because there's questions of whether you round up, you know, if, if part of that engine came from Brazil, does the whole engine count or do you take the parts? Set that aside. The Trump administration has made it a major priority to increase not North American content, or not just North American content, but U.S. content. And that's a novelty in these trade agreements. So what they've talked about, um, and don't hold me to the exact numbers, is something like an 82% North American rule of origin, but 50% United States parts. And that's something which is a novelty and has been completely unwelcome um, from the Mexican perspective, from the Canadian perspective, and then curiously enough, and this is what's different about these talks, also from the U.S. automotive sector, that usually we get proposals like this that are put forward because there's some domestic demand for this, that somebody is in saying, please help me. That's not what the U.S. automotive sector is saying about these. They're saying, this would really hurt us, that, you know, please don't do this. Nor is Congress asking for this. They're saying quite the reverse. So, this is not unique to this rules of origin question, but it, it serves as an example of why this is tricky, because they're putting forward these proposals that don't have domestic support, don't have the support of our trade partners, so it's very hard to see where they go. One of the more contentious topics is the ISDS mechanism, and that's the investor state dispute settlement mechanism, which is in trade agreements, is within NAFTA. Uh, there's concern that from the Canadian perspective, uh, that the U.S. wants to remove this chapter, Chapter 19, I believe, from the current agreement. Uh, can you speak about that briefly? So there's two separate uh, dispute settlement things that are going on. There is ISDS and there's Chapter 19. Um, the Chapter 19 is a special dispute settlement that has to do with U.S. anti-dumping policy. And to make a long story short, 
the the Canadians like this because it puts some limitations on U.S. use of anti-dumping, which is a way of sticking on protection. It's de facto a way of sticking on protection, which is different from just simply adopting tariffs. Um, that's not what it's intended for, but that's how it often plays out. So for them, this is very, very important. It was very important even for when they first started talking about U.S.-Canada trade agreements. So this for them is a red line. Um, but the U.S. would like to have more latitude to pursue these things. That's the Chapter 19 issue. The investor-state dispute settlement question has to do with the fact that these, what we call these trade agreements, they're investment agreements as much as trading agreements. That is in large part because investment and trade often go hand in hand. A very large fraction of trade occurs between related parties, where it's a, a parent and a subsidiary company. So uh, this is one where I think Mexico cares a little bit more. Um, and so does the U.S. business community, though, that if you're talking about investing in a place where they have uncertain investor protections, this investor state dispute settlement offers a range of these protections. The extent of those has often been misunderstood. I think people have this idea that this gives corporations fantastic power to strike down national laws and the like. That it doesn't actually do. Um, complaints don't always succeed. And if you do have a complaint where an investor, say, in Mexico says, I've been wronged by the Mexican government, the the recourse is not striking down a Mexican law or a Canadian law in that case. It is that there'd be a financial compensation. Um, so. This is something that has been very important to the U.S. business community to get into these agreements. I think it's you have dis- different opinions. Some of my colleague friends and colleagues at the Cato Institute dislike this, and I know some legal scholars dislike this um, in their case because they think it sort of disproportionately lets um, corporations circumvent uh, existing legal systems. Yeah, it's a question of national sovereignty to them. Yeah, although, well, sort of, because, but this doesn't actually violate sovereignty. This is just sort of talking about compensation on the outside. So I, I'm not sure that the sovereignty issue is, yes, is perceived as a sovereignty issue. I'm not sure it really is a sovereignty issue. I think it's sort of, are there special claims and is there special treatment? For the Trump administration, I think the attitude that we have heard from Ambassador Lighthizer is, hey, look, if you think that it's risky to invest in Mexico, don't invest in Mexico. Um, I don't find that particularly compelling. I think the whole reason why we sign these agreements is sometimes to help countries like Mexico become more economically successful. Um, That does not mean that they're doing it at U.S. expense. I don't think that's what the history of NAFTA has been. But I do think the U.S. benefits when it has a strong, economically sound Mexico on our southern border. And you had talked about the timeline earlier and also how this support domestically within Congress with also the U.S. business community uh, is crucial really for advancing these trade agreements through Congress. So knowing that the timeline is tight, knowing that these certain components around rules of origin and other specifics of the agreement uh, are not being met with the uh, most favor by the U.S. business community and Congress, how likely is it that they're uh, really going to hit this timeline before we hit the Mexican elections and uh, into uh, potentially even the uh, midterm elections later in 2018 in the U.S.? Yeah, well, here's thing where things start to look a bit grim. Um, and there's, there's several versions of this timeline. So one version of the timeline is, can we get things wrapped up in you know, January or February? Can you strike an agreement uh, between these three countries? That will not be easy by any stretch, and there was nothing that happened in this last round that should give us any confidence about their ability to do that. But let's suppose you did. Then there's another part of the timeline, which is, 
all right, you struck a deal. How likely is that to actually get implemented? And we saw, if you go back to the end of President Obama's term with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they reached a deal in October of 2015. It never came into being. And it was sitting there waiting for President Trump to kill it when he first took office. So even if they do strike this deal, then you face this problem. And the problem is, you know, has several dimensions. One is that under U.S. law, under Trade Promotion Authority, it's not like, you know, they get finished one weekend and Congress takes it up the next. And and Trade Promotion Authority being the allowance by Congress to the executive branch to negotiate trade agreements. Exactly. That what they are doing is they're giving the president not just the permission to negotiate them, although it's certainly that, but a promise that if you follow the rules and you bring an agreement back to us that was done the right way, Congress will put it to an up-down vote. Um, but until Congress actually takes that up-down vote, you don't have anything. Um, it's, it's just a bunch of paper. So the problem is, this is a more involved thing, there's some fairly long timelines once you conclude an agreement. The odds of getting it done, even were you to sort of resolve differences between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, getting it done in this Congress are quite slim. And part of this, the part that's been disturbing this last week or so, is the Trump administration does not seem particularly concerned with whether or not they have support in Congress. They've been on things like that rule of origin or the sunset clause. You've had leading members of Congress saying, we don't like this. You shouldn't do that. Um, Ignoring those kind of leading members is rarely a a good plan for for getting an actual deal passed. So, Phil... After the talks concluded uh, earlier this week, Ambassador Lighthizer took a much more optimistic tone, uh, saying that he hoped to develop a bipartisan consensus around trade once again through these talks. Yeah, that was weird. Um, it's, it's a very, very worthy goal is to try and do this. We, we had something like this um, pretty much through the Cold War, where, and it meant that instead of trying to convince you know, that last marginal congressman to support this, if you had, say, two-thirds support, then you could drop somebody who had unusual views or sort of protectionist views. So it's a great goal to get back to that. It kind of presumes that people haven't been thinking about this very much and they haven't worked on it. I think uh, it's going to be quite difficult. And I mean, you, you do have to give Ambassador Lighthizer credit. He has managed to bring both parties together in an unexpected way. It's mostly been in opposition, though, to what the administration's doing. So he's got both the, the chairman and the ranking members saying that they dislike this. So the unity is encouraging. It may show that he's heading in the wrong direction. And I think this touches a little bit on some of the campaign rhetoric of the Trump uh, Trump campaign. What they really thought of trade policy going into the election. And now that the administration is negotiating or renegotiating NAFTA, how is this rhetoric going to really flesh out in terms of negotiating trade agreements? And not just NAFTA, after NAFTA, because there is a preference, or at least a stated preference, that bilateral, meaning one country with another country, bilateral trade negotiations are preferred versus those of a multilateral nature, like the TPP, for example. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's worth remembering that when on the sort of the eve of President Trump taking office, the U.S. had negotiations underway effectively with 39 countries, that this was the 28 countries of Europe, 
um, through a, a sort of transatlantic deal, and 11 other countries across the Pacific, which included Mexico and Canada. Um, exactly as you said, this preference for bilateral deals has meant that they were going to take them essentially one at a time, in this case, two at a time, um, but that everybody else is waiting. And everybody else has been watching these NAFTA talks very, very closely, trying to figure out exactly what you asked. We saw the harsh campaign rhetoric. Harsh campaign rhetoric doesn't always translate into, uh, into tough policies. Um, President Obama had promised to withdraw from NAFTA. That worked out okay. So people were waiting to see what did this mean. That was the novelty of this last week, where when a president takes very tough stances against trade deficits, for example. What policy levers do you pull to affect a trade deficit? This basically leaves most trade economists nonplussed because they would tell you trade deficits come from macroeconomic factors, not from policy. So what do you do? We got some answers to that. Um, I think the closest answer we got on the trade deficits question was the sunset clause. The sunset clause essentially says um, that if you don't, if five years from now you don't have all three parties happy, the thing dissolves. So, is that an answer to trade deficits? Not exactly. It doesn't say how you're going to fix a trade deficit. It just says that if you don't, then presumably the U.S. is unhappy and therefore it dissolves. Um, assuming it's still the Trump administration five years from now. So that's so it, we got partial answers when they said they wanted more North American content. Then the rules of origin proposal was a way to address that. Um, it's not clear these go all the way to making America great again, but it but at least sort of put some flesh on the bones of what it is they're talking about in a trade context. That said, I don't think anybody found the answers very reassuring for the fact that they don't have much domestic support, they don't have international support, and they often fly in the face of the the spirit, if not the letter, of other international agreements. That was, by the way, an accusation from uh, Trade Minister Freeland and Foreign Minister Freeland uh, from, uh, from Canada, which was that many of these things did not seem entirely consistent with what we had agreed previously at the World Trade Organization. And so the, the Mexican and the Canadian uh, ambassadors who are working on this renegotiation with the United States, they seem to be sticking around, even though there is a lot of concern and they don't seem to see eye to eye with uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, the United States trade representative and his team. They seem to be remaining in the talks uh, in an effort to uh, help negotiate these down the line and hope to potentially gain some U.S. acquiescence uh, around their demands as well in the future. Well, there's kind of a shadow hanging over these talks. Um, they, they launched after you had an episode in late April when the president threatened to sign an executive order that would initiate U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA. So he was convinced not to do that. And part of the, the means of convincing him was that Ottawa and Mexico City both said, we're willing to come talk. I think they were acutely aware this last week that doing uh, an offended, you know, walking out on the talks would give a pretext for potentially ending the agreement. And they were bound and determined not to walk out almost no matter what the United States said. And, and ending that agreement would be what exactly? Would that be the Trump administration signing an executive order or is it some other mechanism? A good question. I wish I had a clearer answer for you. We, we know how it starts. 
It starts, they sign an executive order saying, citing the relevant section under the North American Free Trade Agreement by which they would withdraw. But then what happens? Um, and there's a whole series of questions about what happens then. There are legal questions brought up by people like Joel Trachtman at Tufts of whether the president actually has the authority, no matter what it says in the law. Was it a constitutional law that seemed to delegate Congress's authority um, to do this? So you'd likely have a lot of lawsuits challenging that. Um, NAFTA itself is not a treaty. It is not because of the agreement that Bill Clinton struck. It is a series of things that were implemented into U.S. law through implementing legislation that was passed by the Congress, signed by the president. Presidents cannot usually reverse laws just because they feel like it several decades later. Usually it takes another act of Congress to do this. We haven't tried this before with the trade agreement, so we don't know exactly how that would play out. If you take the case of Canada, do we then leave in place the trade agreement that the U.S. had with Canada prior to NAFTA? It was an agreement struck in the late 1980s, the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. If so, that gives people some confidence, at least for U.S.-Canadian trade, is no solace to the Mexicans. Or would that be just as vulnerable as, as NAFTA was? And then how many of these safety nets do we burst through? Because then there's further questions which were raised of what about the World Trade Organization? That the U.S., the real limitation on U.S. tariffs on Mexico comes from World Trade Organization or WTO tariffs which where the U.S. promised to hold tariffs against Mexico at quite a low level. So what's going to happen when the Trump administration figures out that withdrawing from NAFTA does not allow 35 percent across the board tariffs? Does that then put the WTO in peril? So the real answer is after the president does this, lots of questions, lots of lawsuits. So let's turn to some of the needed updates or at least the general consensus around needed updates in NAFTA. For example, in 1994, when NAFTA was enacted, e-commerce wasn't uh, part of this. It was part of the TPP negotiations, for example. So what are some of the needed changes that is generally accepted within the trade and economics community? And uh, uh, how likely are those going to uh, be fitting into this uh, renegotiation? Yeah, so this is a very good point, which is NAFTA was a deal that was struck over 20 years ago. And the economy has changed a lot. Um, usually the leading sector is the one that you named, which is electronic commerce, where we just don't have a lot of regulations for this because that was not a problem in the, in the mid-90s. Um, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico have been aware for decades that there were things that needed updating. The U.S. would sign subsequent agreements that were kind of different. The real There were some things that they could do through executive action without a formal agreement, and they've done those. So you've got this accumulating list of actions, some maybe some cooperation on infrastructure, uh, but things that they wanted to do more, but they needed a legislative um, vehicle to do it. And in reality, what happened was people were quite scared about the idea of trying to run a NAFTA 2.0 through Congress, that this was seen as a lightning rod, you'd have all kinds of difficulties. So even back in the Bush administration, you know, do what you can, don't start talking about pushing a NAFTA 2.0 through Congress. One of the virtues of the TPP was that it did provide exactly that kind of a vehicle. Had it gone through Congress, Mexico was a part of this, Canada was a part of this, so you could address a lot of those issues. And what you saw were a whole range of new topics, um, state-owned enterprises, things to help small and, and 
medium-sized enterprises, electronic commerce, um, new moves on reg the regulatory agenda, on how you sort of coordinate regulations, um, a whole raft of, of issues like that, they were there. There had been a hope that perhaps that's what this NAFTA renegotiation might be. Maybe this would be that you took that stuff out of the TPP, already agreed with Canada and Mexico, and you just pass that. And then you say, there you go, NAFTA 2.0. If there's something we learned this last week, that's not the direction we're headed. That's not what the administration has in mind, that the proposals they put on were not the things that, that everybody already agrees with. So one of the questions that was actually posed on the Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group by Dominic Edward was that an updated version or, the, or would an updated version of NAFTA include improved cross-border infrastructure between the two countries or three countries rather? And you had talked a little bit about regulatory harmonization. There seems to be some uh, appetite for that, at least from the Canadian and Mexican sides. Do you see that at all playing a part in this? Yeah. So on the infrastructure stuff, there, there's certainly, I think, a desire for this. To the extent it comes into trade stuff, it's often trade facilitation. How do you make the border work? At, at other times, people have talked about things like a North American Development Bank, where you would have that kind of coordination. At least from what I've seen so far, this is not a driving force in the current talks. It's something one could have done. Um, on regulatory, there is more, and that's just because that's where a lot of the barriers to trade have actually emerged, and it's why you need to be an update. It's not that we have high tariffs blocking things between the three countries, but you do sometimes have regulatory obstacles, and you've got industries that are trying to integrate across them. But it's, it's these kinds of things where I'm keeping your product out, not through a tariff, but by saying that it's unhealthy, saying it's unsafe. And of course, we do want to keep out products that are unhealthy or unsafe. The question is, how do we distinguish between legitimate concerns and things that are just sort of de facto barriers um, that are disguised protectionism? And so that's what these talks usually try to do. Yes, fine, keep out unsafe products, keep out unhealthy products. Don't give somebody carte blanche to label products as unhealthy or unsafe, whether they are or not. So, Phil, to what extent are these pure economic agreements, commercial policy agreements, uh, versus what they are in terms of foreign policy, specifically around national security? Yeah, I think both components are really important. So it is not a pure economic agreement in the sense that if you went back to the mid-1980s and before, the norm was not that the U.S. and Mexico agreed with each other and worked well with each other. There was a lot of tension between the countries. So yes, most of the what was technically covered by the North American Free Trade Agreement were economic practices. However, what it launched was a period of much closer cooperation between the United States and Mexico, and Canada as well, but it was the US and Mexico that are sharing that particular border. Um, and that is cooperation that has extended across the foreign policy spectrum, whether this is dealing with immigration. I mean, we, we think of immigrants coming from Mexico, but more recently, these haven't been Mexican immigrants, they've been Central American immigrants. And so, to what extent does Mexico cooperate with the United States in trying to stem that flow? Um, dealing with narcotics, dealing with security issues, you know, people trying to get into the United States across a very lengthy border. So I think there's actually been excellent cooperation with Mexico, and it's not a coincidence that that sort of healthier foreign policy relationship was launched right when the commercial relationship found its new footing. So as we close, 
Uh, how do you see this playing out in the coming months? What do you think are the chances are that the three parties are uh, going to be able to hammer out a new deal that uh, the Mexican Congress, the Canadian Parliament, the U.S. Congress, uh, and uh, the Trump administration can all agree to? And uh, how, what would that look like? I think the odds that they actually get all the way through to a deal that all legislatures approved are vanishingly slim at this stage. Um, I think the best we can hope for is that things don't blow up and that maybe the talks continue. There is going to be a juncture coming up. We thought it was going to be at the end of the year. Now it looks like early in the next year where they're going to have to make some choices. And the, the principal choice is going to be, does, does one continue the talks and continue a search for common ground? Or does one declare that these have failed? And does President Trump then have an excuse to blow things up? And I think it's a bit of a toss-up at this stage which way we're headed. I would not say that this last week's events were encouraging. Well, thank you, Phil, for joining us to discuss the NAFTA renegotiations. Been a pleasure. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and ask someone else to subscribe, too. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Alex Hitch. We'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.